Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, guys. So the interview with Richard Rhodes uh, ironically got cut short because he had a power outage. So talking about energy being cut short by lack of energy is kind of hilarious. So we will resume tomorrow, Friday, May 6th, 2022. Um I'm just going to put this up as an episode and we'll have this disclaimer, I guess, at the beginning and the end. So uh, see you tomorrow for part two. The legendary Mr. Richard Rhodes. Mr. Rhodes, please introduce yourself if there's somehow possible that there's anyone who hasn't heard of you. Please introduce Uh, yourself. uh, I'm Richard Rhodes. I'm a writer and I've published 26 books. Uh, and the best known is probably the making of the atomic bomb, which was a complete history of the development of nuclear physics from beginning of the 20th century through the second world war, including most significantly the development of the first atomic bomb. So that's my work. I'm writing generally right around the history of science. And that's why we're talking, I think. Yes. Uh, we've covered, uh, why they kill, uh, Masters of Death, the SS Einsatz Group, and we've covered um, uh, Energy and uh, Scientist. We've covered all those. All those books will be in the description. Your website will be in the description. Um, but I think we both agreed last time that we needed to do a part two for Energy because we wrapped up really kind of like from Shakespearean times till, I don't know, 50 years ago or so. Yeah. But, um, really the advent of, of, of fission, fission reactors and why those aren't utilized more. And then of course the future, uh, future being fusion reactors. But, uh, could you maybe touch on what you believe are the most pertinent aspects of those two and, or other futuristics or uh, futuristic or developing technologies? Uh, you mean go back at least to talk about the problem with nuclear with the, the present energy crisis, presumably. Is sure, like sure. whatever you'd like. There's, there. there's no structure. There's a general sense that I think people have that when a new technology comes along, let's say solar power, that all you have to do is build the machines and boom, there you are. But in fact, there's a good deal of really valuable and fascinating research indicating that major energy transitions in societies are far more complicated. There's, of course, the infrastructure problem. We see that today with the question of how far can you drive between recharge stations on electric cars. And until that vast infrastructure is actually built out across the United States, electric cars are going to have fairly limited utility. Uh, And I noticed that Elon Musk has recently announced that he's going to build recharge stations nationwide as part of his understanding of this very problem. That's just one example, and that's the the infrastructure level. But there's a deeper level that I think people don't think about that really is what delays and slows and 
makes very difficult the transition from one major energy source to another. And that's that we have to learn it. It's really finally society can be seen as a learning system. And until we incorporate new technologies into our living worlds, they, we resist them one way or the other. We, some part of society. Now, some of that is, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, economic. There's a lot of money invested in oil, and gas, and coal. Uh, there used to be a lot of money invested in wood. Wood finally slowly passed away and is strangely enough coming back now because it's perceived to be a renewable resource. Uh, those people who have invested their money <clears throat> don't want to see it lost that those are called sunk costs, meaning money you put into something that you never get back. It's kind of like buying a house. I just bought a house yesterday. So <laughs> that money is really hard to extract out again from or farmers with their land. Those are not really sunk costs because you can't eventually resell these things. But where a coal mine is concerned, if we stop using coal, whatever anybody invested in a coal mine is of no value to them or to anyone else, they fear. So they greatly resist. There's also just learning to use the new technology. It's strange to have cars that are electric, that you plug into a wall socket rather than stop at a gas station. Although I have an electric car, I have a Leaf, and I tell you, there's nothing that makes you feel better. <clears throat> Excuse me driving past a filling station and <laughs> never again are going to have to go into one. <laughs> yeah. My, my older brother has a Tesla and there's something there's, it, it has that feeling of like the first time you played with an iPhone going from yes. like a flip phone to you're like, Oh, this is you're like, it's, it's new now back in like 2005, but you're like, this is the, it is the future. It's, it's no one can stop the oncoming. Yeah, time. You feel it in, in your technology. Yeah. But the fact is, and then there's a deeper thing, which is just simply people's prejudices against against change. When uh, the first electric light bulbs were introduced back in the late 19th century, Edison's light bulb, a lot of people wouldn't install electricity in their homes and electric lights, either because they said they were too bright. And if you think about what they'd been burning before, they basically either had kerosene lanterns or they'd had gas outlets on their walls. I mean, hydrogen from coal gas or natural gas when that was available. Well, you know how bright gas is. Anyone who's had a gas stove can see how bright it is. It's not that bright. Not only that, but it puts out a lot of heat when it's burning. Imagine a, a dance hall lit by, lit by gas lights and everybody trying to dance and all these flames burning all around them. It was a problem, yeah. and people didn't like it. And so, or they got used to it, and then when the electric light bulb came along, they said, "Why do we need those?" They didn't, and 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 the the various people fighting for for a different wedge of the electric light bulb market, or who wanted to keep the gas technology and didn't want people to switch, would promulgate stories about how electricity was dangerous. If you touched a wire wrong, it would kill you. Uh, houses with electricity burn down all the time. So this process of learning a new technology 
is something that has to happen along the way. So therefore, as we talked about before, uh, a major study of about 3,000 examples of electrical, sorry, of energy transitions going back to 1850 found that the it takes about 50 years for a new source of energy to get from 1% of the market to 10% of the market. Did you say 15 or Another, 50? Sorry? Did you say 15 or 50? Five zero. Oh, Lord. Okay. And then another 50 years, five zero, to get from 10% to a dominant place in the market, which would be about half, 50%. Well, we don't have that kind of time. The other thing that we talked about that illustrates the time problem is we tend in the United States to think that the fundamental issue today of energy transitions is global warming. And there's no doubt that that is one of the problems for anyone who's actually looked at the science. I know there are people who believe it's not real, but if you go look at the science, it's real. And I think you see that, I'm beginning to see that in the desertification of the Southwest, in the fact that California, poor California, is eventually going to burn down entirely, according to the state people who are concerned about that issue. Uh, I just moved to Washington State, by the way. So we sold our house in California before it burned down. <laughs> there seems to be a great deal of water here in Seattle. So I yeah, think we're I think you're, okay for a while. I think you're safe. <laughs> so uh, the, the, adop the adoption of technology, the 50 and 50. Uh, let's see, but I was talking about a particular kind of technology. We don't have oh, that time. The two, the two parallel problems, the one people are aware of uh, is global warming. But there's another problem that's equally large, really, or about as large. That is the part of the world we used to call the third world, the developing world, India, uh, and to some degree even China, although it's moving very rapidly, Africa. These are parts of the world that have been living on very low levels of energy, or to say it in another way, very low levels of sustenance and, and uh, with the corresponding shortness of lifespan, with a corresponding uh, increase in disease, epidemic disease, because of lack of resources to deal with it. They have made the famous demographic transition. They've got their population expansion under control. It's starting to be. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. That people don't have to have 10 children in order for one or two of them to survive through adulthood. But now, and therefore, people are beginning to have fewer children. And therefore, the population increase is slowing and eventually will stabilize. The estimate is the population worldwide will stabilize by the year 2100. 
and we won't be we'll, we'll have about as many deaths annually worldwide as we have births so that's a steady state and that means it's not going to be there'll never be enough energy to deal with all the human beings teeming around the world we will get there but in the meantime the people of these countries that are still developing understandably would like to live a middle class life the way the rest of us do and in order to do that they're going to need vastly more energy than they have so on the one hand we've got if you keep adding more fossil fuel energy into the into the environment you keep making the world hotter with all the corresponding damage that causes and at the other hand the people who who are just now coming up in the world would will need much more energy than they have per capita nationwide worldwide that's a double problem and 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 it's a problem that i think we have not even begun to deal with but that's kind of where we are energetically so the idea for example just to take one example the idea that you could solve this problem with solar panels is is simply ridiculous however much people would like for it to be the, the case it's simply not plausible that you collect dilute energy from a source like the sun which is only turned on 12 every 24 hours at best and that somehow that's going to be enough to meet all of these needs while at the same time reducing global warming by not burning fossil fuels simply isn't realistic however much people wish it were that's why i've become a real promoter of nuclear power because although people are somehow worried about whether or not some some fuel that's buried deep underground might resurface in 10,000 years right now we have a very serious energy problem it's kind of an energy crisis it happens that nuclear power produces no more carbon for the atmosphere than solar power does and that only in the mining and production of fuel in the actual production through nuclear power you produce no carbon whatsoever it's not a carbon based process it's a nuclear based process so roughly that's i think where we were last time in terms of we have a real dilemma and we haven't i think begun to come to real grips with it on a world basis thus for example europe's decision to to uh to eliminate nuclear power germany in particular shutting down all their reactors it's it's truly remarkable to me that german germany put itself in that position and now with the problem with the war in ukraine we discover another unintended consequence which was that germany is dependent on russian gas and it's going to have to shut down that process and accept a dramatic reduction in their energy production for a while until they can readjust to taking american natural gas which we're shipping over uh, as liquefied natural gas in giant tankers that's going to take a while and it's going to be a problem for germany and if they had stayed with nuclear power as the french have the french have 75% of their energy comes from nuclear everything is electrical in their country the air is cleaner in their country because they don't burn fossil fuels or very little so and italy which decided to go to eliminate nuclear power now sneaks around and buys it from the french, <laughs> <That's> from france. 
hypocrites that they are being. Anyway, this is where we were last time, and it's and it's where we are. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, there's some. I mean, I've always just assumed that there was something I didn't understand, which is probably, and that's applicable to every human in every aspect of every field. But with with nuclear, I mean, right when you're young, really the first kind of thing you ever understand about nuclear is Hiroshima and Nagasaki, especially as an American, that's the history you learn. And then you learn about Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, and then you, I remember Fukushima. I remember it was spring break of my sophomore year of college. Like, so you have those, but the more I look at it and the older I get, and with just about everything in my life, I have found that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The more I learn, the less I know, which I think is, I think that's a good, that's a good, probably a good track, except I would say there's one exception and it's nuclear power of everything from, from women to friendships, to finances, to cameras, to whatever. The one thing that really doesn't add up is why we're not utilizing nuclear power. I mean, from energy independence from uh from bad state actors i mean we buy oil from saudi arabia who throw gay people off roofs from you know looking at the power it gives russia how much stronger could sanctions be against russia if they didn't have that sweet sweet uh oil or gas or whatever you look and then the uh, climate change as well as uh people in the third world wanting a first world uh, uh standard of living which as you said is just it's only human it seems that, I mean, really, sure, are there damages? Chernobyl, absolutely. Fukushima, absolutely. Those are so minuscule compared to the, not potential, but the existing damage we are doing every day, provably. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it's one of the things that, like I said, whereas every other aspect of my life, I'm like, the, old, the more I learn, I, I really understand the world less, except for nuclear. That's something where, despite like political leanings, changes in taste of music, come growing to like certain vegetables that I hated as a kid, the one constant is I genuinely don't understand why there isn't some massive nationwide, almost like an Eisenhower interstate system uh, or you know JFK, let's go to the moon, why there isn't this massive national, let alone global effort to build fission reactors everywhere. I, I really and, don't understand it. And in fact, except in the United States and to some degree in Europe, but I mean, China's planning to build something like 100 reactors in the next 15 years. Yeah. And the reason for that is primarily, I mean, global warming is a secondary issue for China. Yeah. It's their air pollution from burning bad coal that really has, I think, led them in the direction of nuclear. When France went nuclear in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, they reduced their air pollution by a factor of five. 
five times less air pollution than they had before. France is a very clean country now because everything is electric, basically. Uh, they don't put carbon into the atmosphere much, a little, but not, not a lot. And China, you've seen images of what oh, yeah. Beijing, looks, Beijing looks like. I mean, you can barely cut the air. They, it's the kind of air that we would call a major crisis. When, <laughs> when I was living in San Francisco and the fires were occurring north of San Francisco and the smoke from the fires was coming down to the extent, I took a picture one day out, out off my deck. It looked like late twilight. The sun was a dark orange. The sky was orange. You couldn't see very far. You could smell smoke in the air. I mean, that was what Beijing was like. It still is to a degree, although they've cut it down a bit. But they're going nuclear for the other benefit of nuclear that I often mention because it also gets forgotten, which is its contribution to, to a reduction in air pollution, which is quantifiable which has been quantified. There's a paper that was put together by some NASA scientists. And- Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Here reviewed and published the way good science always is that suggested that nuclear power in the United States, and it's only about 20% of our electricity are going down. Nuclear power has probably saved somewhere between 750,000 and 6 million lives from lung disease caused by air pollution. And by extension, if we went more nuclear in the future, the same group of scientists estimated something like another 6 million at least saved from lung diseases and death. So that's an added benefit just in general. But of course, theoretically, you could get that from renewable sources as well, from, I mean, wind and solar and so forth. And to the extent that we could use those sources, of course we should. They're just very expensive, and they're not really a solution. I mean, China is building a lot of solar power as well, but they understand that for really baseload power, 24 hours a day, reliable. You know, solar is about 25% efficient in the sense of that's about how much production you get out of a solar field given the fact that the sun goes down, given the fact that the panels go behind the clouds, given the fact that they only have a 20-year life compared to nuclear power systems, which can last up to maybe 100 years with with rebuilding along the way. Uh, So the capacity factor, which is what that's called, is quite low for solar. It's low for wind. Uh, Nuclear power has improved itself in this country over the last 75 years since it was first developed until the capacity factor of a nuclear plant is now above 90%, meaning more than 90% of the time that plant is operating at full capacity. About the only time you have to shut a nuclear power plant down is to change out the fuel every couple of years. 
and do some minor maintenance at those times. So it's a, it's a system with great virtues, very few vices, really for Western reactors. And I include the Japanese reactors in this, and I'll tell you the Fukushima story again, if you'd like to go through it just briefly. Sure. But Western reactors have an unbelievably high safety record. No one has ever been killed. No civilian has ever been killed with an American-made nuclear reactor, nuclear power system, I mean. So with that in mind, I mean, the fact is the Chernobyl reactor was a total design mess. Yeah. It was one of the worst reactors in the history of the world. It was... It's no surprise that it blew up when it was was stressed by some bad operations. Fukushima is an example of where the backup power system was put for that react that set of reactors, instead of putting the diesel backup power, if the power goes out, you uh, you need a way to run the reactor long enough to shut it down. And one way is to plug into the larger electric grid. But if that's also down, you have to have another backup system. And that's typically some big diesel motors which can be started up very quickly and will generate electricity to allow you to run your control panels and shut down. Okay, so where do you put those diesel generators if flooding is going to be a problem? Well, you should put them up at the top of the building, right? These were down below a level where there had been uh, uh, tsunamis before. You know, the Japanese keep a record of how, where their tsunamis yeah. go. There's famously a stone up on the side of a hill up above Fukushima that was put in place in the year 800 AD. Oh, no. It says we had, no, I'm not making this up. Oh, no. The pictures of it. It says in Japanese writing, it says this was the height of a tsunami in the year 800 AD, whatever number they used. Don't build anything below this that you're worried might get washed away. That's like so, those crosses on the side of the highway yeah. where, where someone, not to make light, where someone was killed, you know, well, and you I mean, see a lot around a turn. The watermark in your house after it's flooded, you say to your grandchildren, and the water got all the way up, <laughs> halfway up the floor. Yeah, you know, built hey, higher. The Japanese have been around for a long time, and they, they kept that record. Well, the generators in the, in the Fukushima reactors were put in the basement. That's, a, that's not a flaw of nuclear power. That's a flaw of design and management. And, and, and why that was done, I have no idea. But it was done, and it's certainly not something we do in the United States. So nuclear power has an amazing safety record. And it's that that I think has led the people who are opposed to nuclear power to focus these days on the other question, the one last thing they've got, which is, well, what do you do with the, with the nuclear waste? And the fact is there are perfectly good places now to put the nuclear waste. The best place to put it is in those big concrete casts that are behind the nuclear power plants all over the world where it's just simply stored until a lot of the short-lived radioactive things lose their radioactivity until it dies down to a low level in about 100 to 200 years. At which time, I'm sure, we'll take that so-called waste, which is actually about above 90% useful uranium. Oh, they'll find a use. Recycled and burned. 
and put back in a reactor. We'll probably do that then because why not? Well, I mean, it's already mined, it's already been processed. Look at all those, I'm sure you've seen them, like all those videos on YouTube. Uh, I think it's a lot in like India where they'll take old, like cathode tube ray TVs, old, the old transistor oh. radio, and they'll rip them apart. They'll melt down the, the, the rare earth minerals and they'll sell them to Apple. <laughs> like, like, and that's just 50 years stuff that you think is waste. That's, that's kind of casual on the beach, tear up the ship sort of yeah. recycling. I'm talking about stuff that's been very carefully stored. Yeah. Yeah. I was writing a little book about nuclear power. I visited several power plants and I went in the middle of a very cold winter to the back of the plant where these giant concrete and steel casts were, were set up outside. They were warm. The, the, the decay, radiation decay going on inside kept it warm. But I put a Geiger counter right up against the concrete and they did not, the needle didn't budge at all. Did, the radiation was completely confined within those, those structures. Did you actually touch the concrete? It was warm? Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. that's, that's great. There's a, I'm sure you know about a Project Pluto in the 50s, that nuclear-powered cruise missile, the doomsday device. Did you ever learn about that? No. Did we build one of those too? Well, no, we... The Russians have built one. Yeah, no, no, no. We we originally pioneered the idea in the 50s um, out at uh, in Mercury, Nevada. They, uh, I think they use like beryllium oxide. It was a, it was a, it's called Project Pluto or the Flying Crowbar. And it was a nuclear powered cruise missile the size of a freight train that would go Mach 3 for months at a time at tree level, spewing out that it could hold 16 one megaton hydrogen bombs and it spewed out radiation. So we could fly it over Russia, hit 16 different cities, and then for like three months, it could fly at treetop level at Mach 3, shattering windows and destroying buildings while spewing it. It was the, it's comical because the ultimate reason why we didn't build it. We, we tested a one-tenth scale. I'll send you a documentary on it. I, it's one of my favorites. We tested a one-tenth scale, and it actually worked. The reason why we didn't build it is because we realized there was no defense against it, so if the Russians build one. But the point of all that is, is when they had to test it, they had to use this weird like remote-controlled train because no one could get near it. And when yeah. they finally decommissioned it, they put it in this concrete-blocked warehouse. And I think 10 years later... They uh, like they went in with some sensors and they said when you like opened the vault door, it felt like your face was outside of an oven 10 years later, just the decaying power of it. But the moral of the story is is they successfully contained it in the 50s. So why can't we do that now? Yeah, well, we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We store nuclear waste presently in a deep mine in southern New Mexico that is in the middle of a thick bed of salt. Yeah. And the salt absorbs the radiation and, and everything is fine. So I guess the question then has to arise that if you and I can figure this out, primarily you, me just having you on the podcast, then smarter people have figured this out. So when something so simple, it's like I remember reading in like 2011 or 2012, like why Florida actually had one of the lowest levels of like solar panels per house in the United States, despite being a sunshine state. And if you dig deeper, you eventually found out that the Koch brothers were lobbying to not have it because they were invested in oil or something. And you go, oh, that's why. So really the closest answer that I could come to after all these years of looking at nuclear power and why it's not used is 
I mean, it's got to be money, right? There's got to be, and not that it's not profitable, there's got to be someone or some industry that is boxing it out, going, you know, we've got all these, so let's imagine you're ExxonMobil. You've got all these oil rigs. You've got all these, those, uh, the, the Shell, they have all those huge liquid gas tankers that they're still building. You've got all these refineries. You've got all these pipes. You've got this built system. Forget Elon Musk putting down new charging stations. Think about every gas station. You've got an infrastructure. Man, right. you've got an incentive to keep using it. I got this camera last summer. I'm not changing cameras <laughs> for a couple more summers, right? It's sure. It has to be money. And if that is the answer, which it might not be, but if it is, you got to think, could there be a way to facilitate that? Could you say, you know, uh, could the government give insane tax breaks or, you know, incentives or subsidies to ExxonMobil and say, hey, you can still make all the money and you guys can still be evil robber barons, but let's just start putting it at nuclear. It'll just be Shell Nuclear or Exxon Nuclear. Do you think that's what it is or is that a naive take? Well, I think it's it's certainly – as we talked about before, the question of those who own the mines and the wells of fossil fuels don't want to lose that investment yeah. and that potential investment. And that has been a major source of resistance. But if you look at the history of nuclear power in the United States, the first people to build commercial power reactors were the utilities the same ones who were generating electricity uh, from coal, primarily, and, and then natural gas. They weren't particularly enthusiastic one way or the other, except in the sense that it was something you could brag about with your with the guy at the next power plant over a golf game. But they did start the process, and the government helped support that process. And it was it was an enthusiastic process. What changed, I think, above and beyond the question of money and, and some costs and so forth, was the environmental movement. And a particular aspect of that movement, which I think is not much discussed by environmentalists, because if they really were aware of it and were prepared to discuss it, they would be ashamed uh, I looked at the minutes of the Sierra Club back in the 70s when it began to be anti-nuclear. At the beginning of the nuclear power world in the 50s and 60s, the Sierra Club was pro-nuclear. And a lot of environmentalists were because they understood that the environmental benefits to not burning up the up coal and oil and so forth. So what changed was a concern, particularly by the California, as it was then Sierra Club, that building a lot more electrical generation, wherever it came from, would bring people to the wilderness, to the California coastline, to the beautiful California wildlife preserves. There was an elitist attitude toward the idea mm. of producing more energy, exactly as we discussed, because people with more energy live more elaborate lives. I don't know if you've been to Africa, but there's this lovely smell of wood smoke wherever you drive in Kenya, for example, because people are still burning wood over open fires to cook their food and breathing all the coal 
particles and carbon in the process. It smells good, but it's not a very healthy way to live. And it's not a way that really allows you to multiply energy supply that when you're just building coal fires. So the idea was in the Sierra Club, and this was actively discussed, if we allow nuclear power to be developed in California, it just means there are going to be more of these ugly things called human beings around, and they're going to be fouling our beaches with their, their tents and their... Mr. Rhodes, uh, your, your feed froze. I don't know if you can see or hear me, but your image froze. I will, for everybody listening, I, I don't think it's my internet. Maybe it's my internet. I don't think it is. Um, let me see. I will text him right now. He froze up. Um, I will now do the most difficult part of this podcast, which is trying to get in touch with a guest whose internet froze while monologuing. Um, it does seem to be that that's like the core problem as always, isn't it? That's what, that's why Trump didn't want those windmills, right? Cause it ruined his view. Um, that's yeah. Right. Isn't that one of the reasons why they didn't want uh, skyscrapers early on was like people in the, in the Hamptons didn't want it like destroying their skyline view or even, yeah, you, you don't want the, it is sort of, even up in New Hampshire, you go up there and they're, you know, beautiful white mountains and people didn't want windmills. When you go up there and you can barely see them on the horizon, they're just these faint silhouettes barely moving around. I hope this wasn't my internet. Let me, let me check. Um, well, it works. Um, uh, but yeah, it seems, you know, even, even, you know, nuclear reactors, people look at it and they don't want to see it. They don't want to see the two huge cooling towers. There's some weird idea that it's, that that's somehow dangerous when in reality it's just, well, at least the early reactors was just molten metal, molten sodium, potassium, molten, uh, I think it was aluminum. Um, hold on. He's calling me. All right, guys. So the interview with Richard Rhodes uh, ironically got cut short because he had a power outage. So talking about energy being cut short by lack of energy, it's kind of hilarious. So we will resume tomorrow, Friday, May 6th, 2022. Um, I'm just going to put this up as an episode and we'll have this disclaimer, I guess, at the beginning and the end. So uh, see you tomorrow for part two.